I could cuss. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> Happy Friday, Very everybody. important. Yeah, very important stuff. Uh, happy Friday, everyone! I uh, hope everyone's having a good a good start to your, good start to your weekend. You're here tonight with some friends, um, so we'll go around the room and give some introductions. AP, do you want to kick us off? Hi, I'm AP. Uh, my YouTube channel is A Critical Dragon, and basically, I I talk about narrative and stuff, and it's fun because <laughs> I like fantasy. <laughs> uh. I guess I'll, I'll go next. I'm Beth Tabler. I'm the procurement editor for Grimdark Magazine, and I run Before We Go Blog. <laughs> I oh, am yeah. Taylor from the... Oh, sorry, Beth. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Keep going. Whatever. Go ahead. <laughs> you, you have a lot more you can list, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, no, but I was, just, I was just saying Paul. I was pointing at Paul. Never mind. Please go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'm Taylor from Me Between the Pages. That's my booktube channel. Uh, I also contribute to Before We Go blog that Beth runs. Um, I like fantasy too. <laughs> and I talk about books and stuff. That's about it. I feel like we need canned applause here. <laughs> it's the voice of God. Who's that? <laughs> I'm harping with my ghost hands. <laughs> You're up, Jenny. <laughs> oh, I'm up. Well, Jenny Wirtz, author, illustrator, been around for a few decades, totally love fantasy, and I love all the people here. You're a great contribution to the community, and I'm really touched to be here tonight, even though you can't see me because I screwed up the tech. <laughs> <laughs> well i guess keeping it with how we're consistency of pl stewart i write books and stuff and uh i'm also uh i also work uh with beth and taylor and steve and before we go blog and i'm just astounded to be here with this uh amazing uh group that uh you know uh, steve be careful you don't break the internet having uh you know, all these people on today. So, but thanks for having me. Of course. And uh, so before we went on, uh, we were talking a little bit, Beth was talking to AP a little bit about the new Lord of the Rings series. Well, you're going to have to opt me out of that one because we don't have streaming and we don't have TV. So I'll probably be two years before I get to see it, but it looks pretty awesome on the trailers. It looks amazing. Yeah. 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 Uh, it, yeah I mean, go ahead, AP. I was it. It is one of those shows that uh, every subsequent image and trailer that they have released, it's it's gotten more and more extravagant and beautiful. And the the differences between this vision of Tolkien's world and Peter Jackson's. And then you go back to uh, the Rankin-Bass Return of the King or Bakshi's uh, Lord of the Rings, which is basically Fellowship and Two Towers, that all of these different visions and adaptations, they're all focusing and trying to evoke this image that we as readers have this personal image and relationship with the work. And no one is ever going to be able to capture what I have in my head when I read any of Tolkien's work, any of the Legendarium. 
but when I was seeing all of those things being evoked, I was seeing this genuine love of trying to evoke that world. And I've just I've I've gotten more and more excited. And it may be heresy to say so, but I'm actually more excited about Rings of Power than I am House of the Dragon. No, no, no. <laughs> but I'm with you. I'm sorry. I'm with you. But I fully expect I'll probably love both. I mean, how can it destroy what came before? It can't. It might bounce um, off it. It might, it might, some things might bleed through a little bit, but my love of the books goes so deep and the Silmarillion and everything goes so deep, whatever they do. I'll either enjoy it or like the Bakshi version, which I hated, I'll just turn it off. Oh, Johnny, I can't believe you didn't like the Bakshi version. The first hour and a half of Bakshi, I I absolutely adore. The second... That the second was the problem. Part. That was exactly the problem. The rotoscoping, they did a really bang up job on their visuals in the first bit, but then it really severely ran downhill and I hated where they stopped it. And so watching my artist side just exploded. I just said, oh, I'm done when the quality started leaving the imagery. So even though they tried to be faithful to the story, but I felt it, even the scripting wasn't as solid as it could have been. So that one didn't jive with my book vision, not even close. Yeah, it's one of the, the weird things about the Bakshi version, obviously, is at uh, the one of the studio execs had said you can't have a villain called Saruman and a villain called Sauron. So during during production, they changed Saruman to Aruman, and so some of the lines are Saruman, and then the other lines are Aruman, and you just there's no consistency. Oh my god, I didn't know that. Horrible. So yeah, you can't be serious that you said you can't believe I didn't like it. Well, no, the but the first half I just thought was such a fun, wonderful evocation of the fellowship. It's as soon as they the production started running into problems and they were trying to do the two towers, and then things just sort of went horribly wrong in the in the back half. But that first half is such a a beautiful tribute to uh, to Tolkien's work, even though they they still they cut out Bombadil, they cut out Old Man Willow, they cut out the Barrow Downs. The Council of Elrond is again like the Jackson version, very truncated. You know, Bree is Bree is more substantial in the Bakshi version than it is in Jackson's version, and the the Shire stuff at the start is actually a lot more evocative of of Tolkien's book, but um. The, the first half of it is just such a wonderful love letter to Tolkien. And particularly when it was made, what was it, 1978? Right, yeah. right. We we're all waiting for it with bated breath, but then yeah. the second half ran downhill. And it's sorry, you know, if they can't stick an ending, I feel the same way about books. You can give me the best beginning in the whole world, but if you can't stick an ending, uh, I'm not going to remember that book very long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I feel like, and, and this is probably going to, we're probably going to get divided into warring camps soon, you know, uh, Tolkien adaptation versus uh, GRM adaptation. And obviously I love Tolkien, but what I really love about um, these adaptations that are coming out is that they're based on these books that 
for a lot of people, I personally love, but a lot of people found more like almost akin to drier textbooks, history books, because a lot of it is about the genealogies. You bring out these lineages. You talk about all these different houses and these these characters that you know for the 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 uh, the series that really made the the popularity what it is. These origin stories and, and but I love that stuff, right? Um, you know, I think with House of the Dragon specifically, I don't know how many of you have read The Incredible of Fire and Blood. I love this book. Um, you know, but I, I'm curious to hear what the panel thinks about um, this House of Dragon adaptation as well. Besides I can't the... see it yet, guys. streaming. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched it either, but do you think it's going to be good? C.T. Phillips, who blogs with Before Go Blog, did an amazing article about why he believes um, it will be good. For one thing, he mentioned like the source material. There is no worry about running out of source material. It's it's all here. It's done. The history of the Targaryens is written, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons. I recommend you go read the article. But do we think that for certain reasons that this won't flop the way, you know, for example, in Game, in Game of Thrones, when they run out of source material, that's when the ship ran aground in those last few seasons. Do Are we thinking that maybe this has a – I personally think it's going to make it. Well, here's the thing that I observed yesterday from all that I could see of it, which is nothing except people's comments. And I've been running from spoilers as fast as I can sprint because I really want to see the original production when we can get a hold of it. I noticed huge, raving, happy, this is fabulous comments from the men. And I only saw one woman rave about it. And that was Jane Johnson, who was George's editor. So that was curious to me. I was just watching who's commenting, but that's all I can see of it. So you guys are the experts. I'm the fool. Well, Jenny, you're you're essentially a contemporary. You you came out as a writer. You know, your 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 career in some ways parallels Jeremy. You came out as a writer around the same time, you know, both iconic writers, you know, international best. I was like, well, do you have any particular insight into into that that whole thing as to as to why? I mean. As for what I know, I'm trying not to, I haven't watched it yet, but I understand that there's a scene, um, there's a scene in, I don't want to spoil things for people, there's a scene in the first um, the first episode of, of uh, House of the Dragon where it's very traumatic in terms of, of, of a childbirth. So uh, is that why you think that that a lot of women aren't? Um, aren't I had no idea because I, they didn't say why, they were just silent. Jane was the only co female commenter on that series coming out. The men were raving. Oh, this is fantastic. This is going to be really good. So how about you women here, Beth and so on, that have you see, you've seen this. Have you seen it? What do I you have, think? I haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it either. So we've all yeah, maybe, haven't haven't seen it yet. maybe we're just quiet because we haven't seen it. Personally, I have no idea because... Um, I haven't seen it. Now, I did see one comment concerning there was a rape or something. And I understand why there's such a lot of pushback about that. But I also see sometimes the pushback getting crazy, like Donaldson's work, where he was literally writing, you know, Stephen Donaldson, Lord's Fowl's Bane, and everybody goes off of, I'm not going to read this because of the female rape, you know, the, the teenage girl who's raped on page whatever. 
And they don't take the time to look at what Donaldson actually did. They don't read his essays where he said he was writing about the demons in our heads and how we, if the demon in our head gets loose, what it would look like and how we often discount the beautiful side of our inner selves. So the whole thing was not only about the land and not only about the story of what happened to this guy when he let the inner demon loose uh, because his whole life, his real life was trash. Um, to read that entire series, Donaldson actually did something very profound. This was not a gratuitous thing. It was not flung in there without thought. It was not flung in there as a, this is just a trope. He was actually doing something seriously deep. And if he was in fact writing an analogy of the inner mind and inner self at war with itself, which many people overlook, it's a major work of fantasy literature and people are just flinging it out like, let's not watch this. So I don't know what the Game of Thrones sequel, prequel, prequel, I guess, is going to hold. But and I don't know whether people are going to treat that the same way. And I'm not saying they're wrong to treat it the same way because we've got to evolve as a society. We don't mess on mess. But I feel like so oh, I'm sorry, Jenny. That we we overlook some of our best literature where somebody actually delved into that and went below the skin and wrote what everybody else was afraid to write, where that stuff had seriously repercussions. Um, so I wonder sometimes, do we do we step too far? I think um, going off of that, some of the pushback was, um, I think connected to the rising grimdark because, um, you know, it has a lot of darker themes in it. And there was a trend people were noticing where scenes like that were used as like a plot device or a jumping off point for a main character yeah. in some cases. And so I think there, you know, there was a lot of pushback from that and also pushback on the, the concept that, well, that's what reality was at the time, but you have dragons. So that, what do you mean that's what reality was at the time? Why is this the only thing that needs to be realistic? Why does sexual violence have to be the only thing that's realistic? And I think it can be done in a way, like you said, Danny, that, you know, really explores like, the, you know, the deepest part of human nature and doesn't use it as just a plot point. Um, but I think that there was a lot of pushback with the rise of Grimdark and GRM and just how much of that content. I agree with you. And there, that's yeah. rightful pushback. In other words, I agree mm -hmm. with all of that. I just, mm -hmm. some, once in a while, I'll see the baby pushed out with the bathwater. Not very often, mm -hmm. because the trend is definitely entrenched in, in fantasy literature. And in fact, much a lot of writing includes that, just the trope, establish the bad guy by trashing a woman. But it was the baby of the bathwater in the case of Donaldson, where he really wrote a very deep literate work and a lot of people today won't even read it. Well, I, I think that's a, a terrible loss and a shame because, you know, every one of the repeated refrains that we, we resort to is inclusion is not the same as endorsement. And, you know, we it's very easy to say that. And as we, like everyone knows why it is included, how it is included the focus, whether it is focused on the perpetrator, focused on the victim, whether it is treating the victim sympathetically or whether the, the victim is merely there to further a male storyline. There, there are so many different ways that the 
the act, the subject, and the topic can be included and addressed. And it is important, at least I feel, that authors don't shy away from ever including it, but uh, because it is an important topic. And fantasy literature, just like any other form of literature, spans a whole remit and some of the best of it focuses on things that are important to our society and that are very difficult for us to address. And it gives us an element of psychic distance. It gives us a shield sometimes to deal with very difficult topics. And therefore, fantasy and science fiction and horror are places where we can address these things with a bit more protection. And so I think it is important that authors address this. But part of that means that it has to be it has to be addressed sensitively. And that's not saying that it must be done in a specific way, because that's always going to be dependent on the specific narrative. But there has to be thought behind it. It can't be a thoughtless inclusion of, I need a backstory for this kick-ass female warrior. Oh, I know, I'll put sexual assault in her history, because that makes her complicated and dark and edgy. And you go, there are so many variants of backstory that you can include. Why is that the go-to? And I think that is a lack of imagination. Um, and it, it has become a default, a, a lazy default for certain narratives and certain characters. And I think that is something very rightly should be criticized. And portraying sexual assault and rape as some sort of titillating event for in, in a in a story that is not about how like how say society treats it that way. If if it is just added in as a titillating event, as a bit of, oh, isn't this this will be interesting and fun. And that that can be very, very uh difficult, problematic, and quite rightly attracts criticism. But as we all know, depending on what the focus of the narrative is, depending on what the narrative is doing with that, even putting it in that way that is titillating. Can, can be both appropriate and very well done, but it is so entirely dependent on the not only the intention of the author, but their skill to realize their vision. I think you've nailed it. But there, it's a very nuanced topic, and and often there's such polarization around it now because people do need to change, and the pressure to change is so strong it's creating a polarized filter where actually some works that explore this in a sensitive way or a deep way or a deeply disturbing way where it's rightfully handled that way are being dismissed and not read. So, yeah. Well, the pendulum never stops in the middle, right? So I think that's what we're dealing yeah, with. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah. <laughs> so. There is a great book that really got me thinking about this called The Refrigerator Diaries. Oh, anybody, yeah. Anybody, oh, and it talks about the concept of frigid character. And then for me, once I saw it, I can't unsee it in fantasy. It's it. Things are changing, but it was so prevalent in the way of using rape, sexual assault, murder as a means of developing characters. You know, at <laughs> least. It has to be pushed hard to change the trajectory that we're already on. 
Well, this is the thing, right? One of my, and we're not talking fantasy now, one of my favorite adaptations, I, an adaptation that I think changed TV forever was Roots um, by Alex Haley. And obviously there's problems with, there were, there's some issues with, with, um, you know, the authenticity of the story and things like that. We, we all we probably well documented were. However, that adaptation could not have been told, um, especially from the perspective of, of, uh, American slavery, um, of African people without the violence, the sexual assault, the things that happened, right? You, you couldn't tell that with the same effect, whether including, um, those, those unfortunate and savory aspects of, of history, um, it wouldn't have been the same. So I think, you know, and, and to, um, I think to AP's point and Jenny's point about Donaldson, and I'm a, I'm a Donaldson, I, I love Donaldson's work. It's one of the earlier fantasy books I read. Um, you know, I, I wonder sometimes if, you know, uh, and I here we are picking on GRM, GRM again. When you, when, when, you, when you write a book that has incest, um, you know, sexual assault, even in a relationship that was initially consensual amongst brother and sister, all the things that go into to, to that, those books. And then you put that on the screen, right? It, it, it's hard to come back from that, right? You, you kind of, you know, it, it's hard for future adaptations, you know, if you're trying to portray something sensitively, like, oh, nope, I heard that's in there and I saw that on, on, a, on Game of Thrones and I'm done. I can't watch that anymore, right? Um, you know, so I think, I think there is a heightened sensitivity for adaptations now because of where we've gone and how far we've gone and some of it perhaps gratuitous, but some of it, you know, integral to, to plot and, and, and the story. And I'm not sure, um, you know, how, um, you know, graphic this, this scene is that I think is really stirring up uh, people about, about uh, the house of the dragon, but I guess I'll find out. But the one thing I, back to the female thing quickly is that um you know one thing i i am going to enjoy i think about house of dragon is that some of the strongest characters you would argue the main characters are are, are female um you know um damon targaryen aside um alison hightower and 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 rhaenyra tiger and they're 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 the main and rhaenyra's they're, they're the main characters so um, i'm looking forward to seeing some strong uh, female characters uh, that dominate um you know the narrative in 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 House of the Dragon. Yeah, I mean, I think when when we reduce it solely to trope status, and the, I think this is is a problem that goes beyond this one particular thing, but is actually about a lot of our our discourse and approach to discussing books. We go, that's the trope. You go, oh, congratulations, you've identified it. This is the same thing when we were at school and you were taught to identify a metaphor or a simile. You go, look, I can point at it. You go, that, that, that's the first step. The next step is actually the more important one, which is why is it being used? How is it being used? How is it being integrated? That there is a massive difference. And the, the fridging thing is actually uh, really, really important because... When you look at the uh, was it the, the first episode of Wheel of Time and a character gets fridged and there were a lot of people up in arms about this aspect, particularly because it was an invented aspect. And yet they completely overlooked the fact 
that, yes, while that happened with that one element, we had three very powerful uh, female-centric storylines that were not doing that. And that uh, particular aspect actually explained in shorthand why Perrin's arc develops the way that it does, both further down the line in terms of his romantic issues, but also very, very expressly about why he fears uh, becoming violent. And when you think of the, the compression of trying to get all of that information across, which Jordan took probably about two books to fully develop uh, Perrin's reasoning, that came across in that one sequence. And we can see how traumatized Perrin is by it. But this is not Perrin's story. This is a, an entire ensemble cast because... And, and for part of that, you go, yeah, they, they could have done it with his mentor figure, but then there would have been complaints about that and ramifications for that down the line. It's, I know the trope is not good, particularly when it is deployed in a male story to further the male story. But with an ensemble cast where some of the online criticism was, this is a feminist story, blah, blah, and they were getting up in arms about that aspect, that looking sometimes at a specific trope in isolation blinds us to how it has been integrated into the entire tapestry of the narrative being created and the reason it has been put there doesn't necessarily mean that it has been well done and it doesn't mean that you have to like it but we could have the same reactions why are so many superheroes orphans that's just lazy why are um, why are so many heroes orphans? That's just lazy. That, but, and that's when when things are reduced to tropes and are deployed without thought. And the major aspect of all of these things is when they are deployed without thought, when they're just used as a casual shorthand without paying attention to ramifications and integration into the narrative. So there are there are a lot of elements where you can you can disagree with the choice because it's not to your taste but one thing we that we reason, often forget though is to get a main character dissociated from their society so that they see angles into their society differently that is sometimes the root of some of those tropes so the orphan trope how do you dissociate a kid from the rest of his society when everybody else has parents and is secure. So it's often, the trope is there to topple the balance just a bit. Um, but it isn't always well done. Since you were talking about the Game of Thrones and we could go back to an episode that I have seen, in the first series, when they did that awful, horrible, nasty, what, four season rape of Sansa? that George didn't write into the book. A lot of women got upset with that. And I did, I was one of them because why did it have to be so horrible? We'd already established the people involved were terrible people because of what they did to poor Reek. So adding her trauma on top of that, what did you guys feel about that? It really tore me to, to shreds, turned me off big time because it's like, why did we have to go that far with a female character was it really necessary? Could it have done been done in a more creative way? 
I'd love to hear from Beth and 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 uh, Taylor specifically about about that. I have my thoughts, but you want to go first, Beth? I don't mind either way. <laughs> I'll be very honest. I have seen it piecemeal. Like I've seen the series piecemeal, so I don't have a continuous um, viewing. I caught I caught the last season. And so I think maybe that has kind of um, tempered how I feel about the series, but I don't have a good idea of the the continuity or the, the character arcs just because, you know, I didn't have access at the time to watch it. So I never really did until much later. I was much later too. Yeah. Well, um, I did, I watched it later, but I did watch it as a whole. Um, but for me, Basically, that whole sequence of how bad this character is. I can't remember. What was his name? Ramsey. So, Thank you, Ramsey. There we go. Yeah. So, like, in of course, that particular scene, that rape scene of Sansa, came, it stuck out to me, but it came in the midst of me already being tired of seeing how bad this guy was because it was so many episodes of just him being terrible. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. He's I had to walk out of the room. With the, with you don't, you don't have to keep showing me this. So yeah. for me, that scene was kind of lumped in with how annoyed I was with being told that over and over again. Um, so I don't think that particular scene was like the nail in the coffin for me, but I had, I was already sick of it. So I think that particular character arc was just done, like just beating a dead horse at that point. <laughs> I, yeah, and I wonder if, because for me, if... This was supposed to be part of the payoff in later episodes. For example, uh, when Sansa um, meets um, the Hound again, and later, much later, uh, prior to the, the, the you know the battle with the Night King, um, you know when she later on when she eventually ascends to the leadership role, she ascends to. If this if this was all about building Sansa's character as damaged but resilient, you know, has overcome all this trauma and forged into the person she was today. I guess my only comment is, I think it we could have had a little bit less focus on the actual trauma and a little bit, like there could have been more fade to black, there could have been more, I understand, but like, but if that was the intention to get you to that point where you looked at Sansa as this person who's overcome so much, seen her father been executed, been abused, you know, uh, tortured, and has become this this powerhouse now, this political, you know, uh, you know, maneuver, mover and shaker, and eventually a queen. Then I I get it. However, I do think perhaps there could have been a let a little bit less more in terms of what I think was the the gratuitous gratuitousness of the of of the assault, as Jenny said, going on for, you know, that that's that's my only thing. I I think that's what the producer were aiming for, perhaps. Uh, but that's and, and again, that that is a balance between what uh, what is on page, what is off page, what is on screen, what is off screen. How much of it needs to be depicted? How is it depicted? And there are judgments call judgment calls made with it. And it's how much of how much of that is to show the horror of it. And you go, well, how much do we need to to depict to show the horror of it? And for a number of people, there would be a lot of people go, oh, I had no problem with that. Oh, that was fine. Like, I, it, it's a gritty world and this, this should be expected. And other people go, quite rightly, no, that, 
that was no, it's not for me. It was it was gratuitous. It was over the line. And this is where I think sometimes we need uh, authors who don't trust their readers, uh, showrunners who don't trust their audience are depicting things in excruciating detail or hammering home a point far beyond when they could have stopped because they want to ensure that it gets across or they think this this is what people want to see. And there can be a disconnect between the intent of what is being committed uh, and shown and how the audience is receiving it. But trusting your reader and trusting your, your audience can be a very difficult thing and a very fine tightrope to walk across because no author, no showrunner knows every single member of the, the audience or readership. And no one can accurately depict what is the thing. There, there's only, we always, I think, have to start with, there was a good intent. Uh, assuming bad faith, I think, takes us down a very slippery slope in terms of criticism. And if we assume good faith, we, we can then analyze it and go, this is maybe where it went a step too far. This is where it became sensationalized. And it seems to me, it felt to me, watching what was happening, having read the books and then seeing the show, knowing the Red Wedding was coming and watching the huge hammering effect the Red Wedding had on the television audience that had never read the books. It almost felt to me that when they stepped into that sequence with Ramsey and Reek, and then did the Zaza rape sequence, felt to me like they, and I, this is what's in my head, not the people designing the show. It felt to me like they were looking, how can we shock even more? What can we do to top the Red Wedding? And at that point, I had a mental disconnect with that series. Don and I finished watching it strictly for the visuals because the story of this TV series lost me. So we were watching it for the visuals because they did a beautiful job with that. Um, so yeah, it almost felt with me like, how can we make a bigger splash? How can we shock even more? And that to me is betraying the audience, not using good storytelling to engage the audience. And Johnny, that, I mean, that's an excellent point. If you like, if you think back to a lot of the the books and stories that we consumed from say, uh, the 60s, the 70s, the early 80s, the slow ramping up of the level of violence, the detail associated with violence, it has essentially increased over and over again that um, we've become desensitized as, uh, as a series, a sequence of cultures through the consumption of, of film and television. And this is not me railing about violence on TV. It is not that. But in order to create shock value, a film goes so far, but then the next film in order to shock the audience will have to, well, they did it that far, we have to go further. And it gets pushed and it pushed and pushed until eventually the default, the standard, the norm has moved so far that now action sequences that we see regularly depicted in teenage shows um, 20 years ago, would have uh, ensured that that show was well after the watershed, that it was an adult show. Like, even the premise of Green Arrow, a teenage show on the CW, the premise of the first season was 
I have a list of people that I am going to go around and assassinate and murder. That that was the premise of a teenage superhero show. And if you think, let's go back to the 1980s and imagine, imagine pitching this show to television executives. Go, we want to do a superhero show. So there's this guy. He has a bow and arrow and a list of people in town that he's going to go around and assassinate. And you can just imagine the executive saying, right. And so who's the hero who's going to stop him? And they go, no, no, he's the hero. The, you, you can just imagine that disconnect. Like That's how radically not only superhero stories have changed, but uh, our media landscape has changed. Well, and it has. It has. And you mentioned, you know, the slow ramping up. Well, until somebody comes along and throws a rock in it, like the Siege of Pale, that opened a dang book. You know, how do you ramp that? Yeah, yeah, but I, I guess I guess my question is, um, especially for Janet, because you know, and 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 we see, I I, I love seeing um, in the back in AP's bookshelf, we see some of Jenny's books being featured. Um, it's it's great to look at them; they're beautiful. She does the artwork. Just a reminder, just I have, shift. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fantastic. I'm holding the next book in the series, which I'm hoping to get into soon. Future Prince <laughs> Four, and and Jenny is you know. Um, now it's out the media, obviously, that, that the series that she co-wrote, the series she co-wrote with Raymond Feist is going to be adapted uh, for the big screen. Oh, I didn't but know the, that. Fantastic. It's, Sorry. it's all into adaptation. We don't know how far it's going to go, but Six Studios is adapting it. So we'll see. Ah, he's <laughs> got Pearl's Gate. AP <laughs> slipping Pearl's Gate up there as well. Um, but yeah, so, so Jenny, your work is potentially, and I, we can certainly foresee a day when when Wars of Light and Shadow, um, you know, your primary series is going to be adapted for the big screen. Your work has, it's beautiful, uh, and there's lots of violence. It's beautiful, and there's lots of very traumatic, disturbing scenes. Um, it's beautiful, but there are things that if you took those straight and and put those on 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 television, they'd be no less traumatic than some of these scenes we've seen in Game of Thrones, I, I would argue. So how would you, if your series is going to be adapted, the War of Light Child is going to be adapted, would, do you think you would push back on how violence was represented? Things that actually happened in your books, right? Uh, without spoiling. How, how do you think you're, if you're consulting on, on, a, on, on having your series adapted, how would you want to see those aspects portrayed on screen? First of all, for every dark scene in that book and every bleak event and every grim edge that's been put in, there is also a light. I, I raise it so that the point of view goes to a higher point of view. So what I, what I was writing is not grim dark, it is full spectrum. There is beauty and there is pain, there is violence and there is incredible gorgeous scenes and often I find the readers overlook them because they're so trained just to see the violence. They go right over the redeeming of the shades. They go right over some of the beauty. So I prefer a full spectrum um, presentation. The second thing is I really don't like when a character goes through a massive, massive event like that when they don't change and it doesn't impact them. So in a book where 
characters, I won't say which book, go through a major war in book one and book four, they're still sulking around under the bush acting like teenagers. That doesn't work for me, even though it's a major famous epic fantasy. They didn't change from going through an experience like that. And people don't walk out of a major war without PTSD or some kind of something. So having characters who don't change, you know, going back to Sansa, she's had this fairy tale in the books that she wanted this fairy tale marriage. And she fell into that trap how many times before she woke up to the fact this world is really ugly and they're treating people and women really ugly. You're just a chess piece. And she did finally wake up to it. And she was actually using the appearance of that to further her own ends. But it took too long, okay? If she was that smart, she should have woke up after time number one mm -hmm. and begun to see under the nail. So if I ever saw an adaptation of my work, I would hope that the characters aren't stuck in time and stuck in place because that glosses over and minimizes the impact of the major event. So if I stuck a violent thing in my book, I want the characters to walk away changed. If I stuck something in that affected them the other way and they hit, they encountered a beauty that was beyond what they could encompass, I want them to walk away shattered. Both, both ends of the spectrum, all of it. We see too little of that now in writing and fantasy right now is a full spectrum book that, and I'm not talking about fluff. I'm talking about using the Mother Teresa up against the character of a of a um, of a Ramsey, because the world has the saints and it has the devils and it has the demons and it has the the beast that gets loose down in the mind, but it also has the incredible uplifting and capacity to inspire. We have to allow uh, AP's nemesis story to, to, we have to allow Steve to read out AP's nemesis comment down there because it's, it's beautiful. Jenny can't see it. So, uh, Philip Chase said that's an accurate description, Jenny. I'm getting close to finishing the uh, Curse of the Mist Wraith, uh, book one of the Wars of Light and Shadow. It's, it's absolutely fantastic and so reflective of life. Wow, my heart just, wow. But you know, why did the readers miss the beautiful scenes next to the edgy ones? I don't understand that. I, I, I can, a, go a ahead. Really, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, this is something that I've noticed as well, not just beautiful scenes, but we've talked before about like romance and how if that's included in a fantasy story, it's all of a sudden like not. It's all romance. Marketable. <laughs> there we go. It's a romance. <laughs> And something, well, actually, it's right behind me. Let's see if I can move these. I always drop these rocks, and yet I persist in putting them on my bookshelf. Okay. <laughs> um, here we go. Legacy oh, of Brightwash by Crystal Matar. Legacy of the Brightwash. <laughs> yes. So when you were saying beauty balanced with harshness, this is the book that first popped into my, my mind. Because oh, God, i got to grab world. it. It is phenomenal, huh? Jenny. It is. It is. Oh, yeah. It is outstanding so good um but this world is dark <laughs> uh very very dark and crystal does such a good job of balancing that with moments of beauty and you know she there's a lot of themes of you know motherhood in this book as well and she talks about she uses the relationship between a mother and a child to really show some of that love and that beauty that you were talking about in the midst of this world and uh, she was talking to, or we were talking in like a group chat, and she was saying that it's hard to market this book because she 
feels like if she says that people are not going to be interested, like it has to be gritty. It has to be dark. And she can't talk about the moments of beauty in it because then people are less likely to pick it up. So connecting to kind of the broader discussion, I think, you know, you talked about Green Arrow as well, uh, AP. I think the cool factor has kind of been connected with grittiness, with violence. Um, you know, I've heard people say also, and, and you don't have to be a fan of Brendan Sanderson, that's totally fine, but I've heard people say that his books aren't dark enough for them. Um, and that turns them off of it. So I think there's like a connection we've made in society as a whole with things being cool and also gritty and violent. And if they're not gritty and violent, then they're not cool. <laughs> it's like cheesy at that point. Whose definition um, of cool? <laughs> who's what? Sorry. Who's, oh, who's defining cool? I don't know. I just have it, the ether. <laughs> this is the vibe I get from the world. <laughs> Sorry, Beth, you had to say something. I was saying, like, on the on the opposite spectrum, because I work with a lot of grimdark stuff, right? I'm a big reader of grimdark. There is this um, this idea that for some for something to be quote unquote grimdark, it basically has to be violence porn. Like, it's just straight violence, and because it's straight violence, it doesn't have a plot. It doesn't have, you know, character arcs. It's just violence, and that's not at all what grimdark actually is but there's this this pervasive thought in the in the in the ether that that's how it's perceived like you know and grimdark is really more about the the choices and the characters and you know like gray everything is gray and they can go up and they can go down and they can have really good moments and they can have really bad moments it's just highs and High highs and low lows. Well, you know, you. I feel like these chats always cycle around to what Grand Dark is. <laughs> Poor Steve. Yeah. Poor Steve. He cannot get away. His famous video about discussion. what is Grim Dark. But 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 I mean, Jenny hit on I think on a very important point. You know, and I can attest to this as being a writer. I can tell you that most people, while they understand, I hope there is some beauty in what I write. The dark parts is what they focus on and it doesn't matter uh, you know what how i do it that's what comes out and yes there are my book is dark for example because of the themes and it is dark because of you know the character the main character and he is someone who you know um is entrenched in his views and is someone who could be potentially on a path to change I hope that path is realistically depicted. I hope no one's going to say I, I pulled a, uh, you know, a, like a Daenerys, the, the Game of Thrones last season, that, you know, that that Othrin's, uh change isn't representative of what would be real. But at the same time, yeah, I it, it is something that um, when we talked about Jenny doing that adaptation, you know, yeah, I, I hope that they do, when they do adapt your series, Jenny, I think one day they will that they do focus on the, the the sheer beauty and the magnificence that is are these two characters that you created that are that that this dichotomy, the dichotomy within both of them, that they're both, you know, great, have a great capacity for good and a great capacity for ill. And that, that I, I really hope that that does come out uh, when your your series eventually comes to the screen. I'd like to cycle back to what you guys were saying about what is grimdark and 
and is it just violence? And I don't think it's that. I think that I see two things playing with the grimdark. One is the disillusionment seeking a voice and that the cynicism becomes cool. And to me, cynicism is one of the biggest enemies because when you already write the script and you say hope is irrelevant, you've given up fighting. You're justifying the fact that you've given up fighting. You're justifying the fact that you've caved to your situation and that you don't believe in any capacity, shape or form that you can overturn it. So therefore you make it cool to be bitter. So that's one aspect of Grimdark and, and books that go too far that way. I have trouble reading because to me, cynicism is the big enemy. It is the big surrender. And it's something that the human condition, you have to fight that lifelong that you don't find yourself in that space or at least not for very long and especially not to make it too cool to stay there. The second thing I notice about Grimdark and you, your, your mention of women being afraid to talk about the tender side of life or motherhood or whatever, women are more hesitant to speak up on the internet and in forums and other marginalized people the same way because when they do, they feel a whole lot more flack for it. And so often what you get is the dominance of other opinion drowning out because often the women will retire and they will they will listen and they will read or they will they will read the comments but you really know when you put your hands to the keyboard to put a comment out in public or to say something on a forum like this that you're sticking your neck out and that can have repercussions so how much are we swayed by what is grimdark because so many of the women are silent do you guys have an opinion on that I mean, I, think, I, had brother, um, so I had to learn quick to speak up anyway. So yeah, what was that, Beth? Yeah. Oh, um, I was, yeah, you want to go first, Beth? No, no, go ahead. Well, I, I definitely want to hear what you think because you are a big voice, you know, in the fantasy genre. But I want to take that kind of trend and expand it to fantasy as a whole, not just grimdark. Um, you know, uh, I think women get questioned more often whether we are true fantasy fans. <laughs> uh, the gatekeeping ramps up drastically whenever it's a, a woman saying, yeah, I like fantasy. Um, you know, the number of times I've said that somewhere on the internet and immediately, well, have you read this? Have you read that? Have you read that? You know, like it's very instant. <laughs> so I think that that is a trend overall in fantasy. Um, I mean, it, it happens less, I will say, nowadays than it did before. Um, but maybe I've just changed my circles. That could definitely just be the case <laughs> that I've surrounded myself with people who don't do that. Uh, but I would say that that's definitely a broader trend and it is hard to say something. Um, you know, I think the older I get, the more willing I am to just be like, okay, you can have your own opinion, but this is, this is what I have to say. But I was, when I was younger online, I was definitely hesitant. I think you make a really good point there, Danny, um, in general with this genre. But I'm interested to hear what Beth has to say for sure, because you're like a definitive <laughs> voice in the grimdark world even. So what are your thoughts? Uh, no, I get that. I get that. When I was, you know, 20 years ago or something, when I said that I was a fantasy fan, I would get gatekeeped. You know, I can't be a real fantasy fan because I haven't read 
X, Y, and Z. Just like you can't be a real gamer if you don't play a certain type of game or, you know, it's that, it's that kind of mind. I don't get that so much anymore. Um, I do get that a bit with Grimdark. Like if people wanted me to defend that I'm part of the Grimdark team and I deal a lot with Grimdark and being a woman and stuff, because it's almost um, women are not supposed to like Grimdark. Women are not supposed to write Grimdark, which is. Ha ha ha. ha. <laughs> <laughs> the sarcasm came through loud and clear. <laughs> I just finished reading uh, Edis. Uh, Edis Quarterbreak. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. I, 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 yeah, it, it's just horrific. And Beth, you know, kudos to you for being a trailblazer uh, for, for, for women. I'm serious. I mean that in all seriousness, trailblazer for women, uh, you know, in fantasy, in grimdark, in, in, in this whole, um, you know, writing community and people like Taylor, uh, who, who are doing the same. And Janie, of course, who's been doing it for, for decades, um, you know, sorry, but I want to give a chance for Steve there. Matt's uh, Fancy Book Reviews has a question for Beth specifically, so I want to give Steve oh. a chance too. Yeah, uh, first, before we read off uh, Matt's question, I just want to say congratulations to him. He just reached a thousand subscribers, so congrats to oh, Matt. Congrats, Matt. So Matt's question was, Beth, what book do you think is a good example of grimdark without violence? Uh, you know, off the top of my head, the, the things that stick out to me are more like this speculative, speculative fiction type stuff, you know, with the d heavy world building dystopian world where you're kind of it's man versus society and that kind of dark, grim dark it doesn't necessarily need to have violence per se, but off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but I'm really going to search. I know that there are some that don't have violence. I know that there's a lot that don't have rape, you know, so. And that, I mean, when you're asked a question like this, you forget every book you've ever read. And and I someone's like, so what would you recommend? I'm like, uh. The book with the blue cover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have a problem remembering book titles and book authors anyway, just, just generally. So, but yeah, I'll look into it. I'll look into it for sure. But yeah, to to build on a on a point that Taylor raised about um, this being in in fantasy, grimdark and in fantasy, this uh, gatekeeping and the discouragement of female fans and the silencing of female voices. Um, unfortunately, this is not just for grimdark or for fantasy or for science fiction, or for... Th this has been a problem across so many different disciplines and cultural uh, activities, from, from academia, editing, publishing, uh, the types of stories that were made popular, that we can always point to exceptions. We can always point to the exceptions to the rule, but the, the default was always that. And this, this has been computer games comic books female fans of computer games and female fans of comic books have always faced a tougher hurdle to simply be accepted and no i'd argue that i would argue that not across the boards not society-wide but in the earlier days i'm talking 50s 60s 
70s, early 80s, women were very accepted in science fiction and fantasy compared to other arenas because there were so few, few people doing it. It was a very small community of very displaced people. And actually, the more mainstream fantasy and science fiction became, the more women's voices were shut down. But if you look at Annie McCaffrey, you look at Andre Norton, you look at C.J. Cherry, all the men read those people back then because they're simply Le Guin. There wasn't that much to choose from. So you read it all because that's all there was. And the women were actually part of the crowd, but they got edged out. The more society became accepting of this genre, the more the societal values crept in. Was Has that been your experience? I mean, AP, you've read a lot of books. You're, you're familiar with those periods of time as a scholar. I think women are accepted less now than they were then. And I think when, when you had, when it was a small club, uh, the members of that club, because it was so small, because it was a very active fandom, they, um, and there was a close integration, the, the various members, everyone knew each other, and it was a, a much smaller integrated thing. And therefore, you know, but even when you think of like James Tiptree Jr., I, I, I know um, that is a, she was a very special case for a number of different reasons. But the, the number of female authors who used male pseudonyms or published under uh, asexual pseudonyms that, that were ambiguous. Um, but we have, like, Jenny, you're exactly right. As, as it sort of expanded and there was greater scrutiny and it sort of became more mainstream, that there were elements that became the old guard and were sort of defending what they saw as encroachment onto their territory, onto their turf. And it wasn't that we didn't have amazing female authors and amazing female fans. Doctor Who has always had a massive uh, aspect of the fandom composed of men, women, children, people of all ethnicities. But what happens is when we see encroachment into what we perceive as the thing that we love or the thing that uh, is important to us, we, we then sort of try to wall it off. We try to protect it from this sort of uh, influx of these newcomers. And this is where we get the, the whole distinction between like a true fan and a real fan, as opposed to you casual, as if the, the person's love for it isn't to be respected. And purity tests being applied and all of these sort of like the old boy networks that we saw forming and there's nothing wrong with having a group of friends that have formed around you that not quite naturally you don't have to tick off a list on a diversity checklist or oh, these are the people i can be friends with but because of all of these things built in because of uh, an institutional uh, protection of a sort of patriarchal and hegemonic worldview that these things conflated together to create an environment and that's the thing that then ends up being disseminated and, and discouraging and we have always had brilliant female authors we have always had brilliant female academics we have always had this from time immemorial because it's not Marie Curie. Oh, she was just an exception to the rule. But look at how much of female uh, 
science has been swept under the carpet, has not been focused on. Oh, yeah, there's a one line notation, but let's have three pages dedicated to this male scientist. That these things, these things have cumulative effects. And it's very, very, it, each and every instance might only be a small micro instance. But when they are happening hundreds of times a day, thousands of times a day, millions of times a day, those little tiny micro effects build up. And when it happens day after day, after month, after month, after year, after year, after decade, you can see the accumulation of a worldview that is pressing down on these things. And when we take groups of, particularly in fandom, if you were a science fiction nerd and geek, a fantasy nerd and geek, that this was the thing that you love. Let's face it, a lot of us bookish people we're not the social butterflies of our high schools. We were not necessarily the, the, the high school stars and socially aware and having these great social lives. We, a lot of us were quite introverted and this was our thing. And it became very precious to us. And we invested a lot of time in it. And then when suddenly we are no longer the dominant voice in the conversation, instead of celebrating that the conversation has gotten bigger. More people are now loving the thing that we love, that we are now part of this. We see it as, sometimes, we see it as a dilution of our thing. We see it as a, a weakening of our thing, that these people have come in and they're trying to take it from us when that is not the case. It is, it is sharing. It is sharing a love of it. It is sharing different views of it. And... I, I think isolating one tiny aspect of it is always so difficult because these things happen as part of incredibly complex uh, interacting aspects of culture, society, politics, gender, sexuality, that the interaction between all of these different things. And then when you add in spheres of publishing and writing, of film and television production, of uh, different forms of narrative that get that become predominant you you add all of this in and it is an incredibly complex picture where no one thing is the issue but the accumulation of all of them together each one nudging it a little bit more and a little bit more i think that that is why it's so difficult to deal with because like even with that question that was given to beth think of a uh, can you think of a grimdark book that has no violence and it's it's not that no violence is the thing. It's when you say that Grimdark is mislabeled with excessive and gratuitous violence and excessive and gratuitous violence only. The question should be, what are some of the Grimdark books that you love that don't focus explicitly on violence? Not that don't contain none. Why, why must it always be absolute positions? Why is it this binary? Why are we imposing artificial dyads of these absolute untenable positions? You, you want to review a book? Well, you can't, be, you can't be fully omnisciently objective. Therefore, all your reviews are subjective. All reviews are subjective. Therefore, it's all just subjective and it's all equal. You go, no, you're, we apply binaries. And you can see how one leads into the next, leads into the next with rings of power, 
all the major central characters that have been signaled have been quite true to a vision of Tolkien's work. Minor characters or additional characters have looked different, have not corresponded to maybe what was in the writing. And it's suddenly, oh, the whole thing is this. And you go, why, why when core aspects are being incredibly true in a number of regards? Because obviously any adaptation has to change. But when other aspects get changed, it's it's all or nothing. When people talk about, oh, the racist behavior of some fans. Oh, they are attacking the fans. You go, first of all, it is not the fandom. The fandom is massive and expansive. Stop saying that it is all fans, because they're not. They were saying there were some fans, some elements of fandom. But again, we go for these massive generalizations. Well, you know, what's interesting is when you repeat a concept over and over, it's like the nail that sticks up. That's the thing that pops to your mind, first of all, because when you women said, where are the women writing Grimdark with no violence? One of your commenters pointed out Sarah Chorn. She's on my TBR list. I, I admit I haven't read her work yet. It's wonderful book. Top of the wonderful list. book. Yeah, there's a Grimdark that's, she writes with a glass edge of pain, no question about it, but it isn't about violence. So when you can't remember Geez, you're racking your brain. Where's the, the Grimdark book with no violence? The ones that come to mind are the ones that are talked about every day and the ones that are so the going opinion is repeated so often that Grimdark is violent. That's why it's hard to mention an obscure book and get people to read it. It's very, very difficult. I've been trying for years to get people to read um, Matthew Stover for his attacking wit on the entertainment industry, but the one that is completely forgotten is The Marrow Tree by Katie Waitman. Social, um, cultural appropriation and the entertainment industry wrapped into one and it's explosive. It's like a bomb and it's done beautifully. It's done incredibly well, but I can't get anyone to read it because one, the book is very rare. It flopped because no one tried it. And second, no one's heard of it. So it's like dropping a drop of water into an ocean of a million people talking about the grimdark that's going today by some whatever male writer. So how do we battle this when there's incredible diversity? There are, there are black writers who were working in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I read them. But you mention their name and try to get somebody to read that, but but because it dropped under the radar, its time was not ready. People were not ready for it. We could resurrect an amazing amount of diversity not just what's being written cutting edge today, but also what's been done in the past four decades. It is still there and it is still brilliant. Mm -hmm. Well, but when we live in a society, Jenny, where you have someone like N.K. Jemison, who is arguably the most decorated fantasy, fantasy science fiction author of her generation. And what she battled with the literary quote unquote establishment um, was was horrific, right? And of course, perfect storm for her. Not only is she she's a woman, she's a black woman. She's racialized. And you know, if you read about what she went through um, in terms of her locus and her 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 years, if, if you if you if you break some of that stuff down to brass tacks, what you realize is that, as AP said, there are still elements of society. Uh, and and a and N.K. Jemison calls comes with all the credentials. 
the academic credentials, the, you know, she, but still not ready to be accepted, totally accepted. And I don't know, Beth, Beth, this is something I think that is, is irks Beth to no end as well, that, um, you know, we, we have not progressed past that point where- and Look at the power of her work. Nora's work spawned the sad puppies. Oh my God. Look at what that did to the entire field. The ripples that she threw were just so strong. She walked in and dropped a boulder right in front and just shattered everybody's glass ceilings. It was great, but you know, it was not happy that it was done in such a negative way. Mm -hmm. But it's, it is a tribute to her brilliance that she upset so many people with the quality of her work. So all I can say is we need more of her. We need more of her. And one of the comments by her that I read was that she keeps getting repeated requests to write for things and she can't do them all. And so why aren't people asking other people of color and black writers to fill those niches? Why aren't they asking her to recommend other writers to fill those niches as she can't? Because there's lots of talent that's going wasted because that big boulder dropped in and smashed everybody's grass ceiling and they, nobody can see around it. So how do we how do we battle this? I mean, it's a, it's a challenge that all of us in this field need to take up that flag and be sure that more talent is recognized right now. How can we I definitely agree? I think a lot of thing, a lot of what can help, and I don't know how many, well, obviously Steve and I are booktubers, so I'm not sure, you know, how much you guys dabble in that world, but there's been a huge push, you know, in recent years for diversity. What's interesting is how that concept can get manipulated and, and twisted once it's a major topic of discussion. But, um, you know, N.K. Jemison is a great one. She's getting she's getting her comeuppance in the sense that people are finally talking about her, but something that um, I'm part of a book club and we chat like privately, we don't really do videos together, but one of the people in the book club, just her, if you want to trigger her, just show her NK Jemison's book covers because she's like, these are a disgrace. You know, what, what, what's in, contained in the pages is amazing, but you see all of these special editions coming out and, you know, sprayed edges and stuff like that but her covers don't get revamped and it's it's a that's a really good point you can't yeah like you don't see any nk jemison special yeah. editions which is like mind-blowing to me um so you can see yeah and you yeah. so you can see it still um and i think it's one of those things where what i try to do is not make it a talking point because that will turn people away and not make people listen, as Jenny's saying. It will, it's hard to get people to read it if you make it a talking point. What I try to do is just integrate it, integrate books by all types of people mm -hmm. and put them next to each other in my videos. Not say, okay, here's the diverse part of my video, because some people will click off as soon as they hear that. I basically just put everything together and present it in the same light. And for me, I feel like that's gotten a better response you know, I don't get, you know, the keyboard warriors saying, you know, you're just you're just pushing diversity. Like, I don't really get those comments if I present it that way. Um, whereas I know some other people on BookTube really get that pushback, you know, and I think there's a space for both types of marketing, both types of presentation. But for me on my channel, I found it really works just presenting it as one thing. 
this author is just as incredible as this this author. Talk about the book. That's what works. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. That's what we do on before we go. We just talk about the book. It doesn't like have a little title at the top that says like diversity read or something. We just mm -hmm. Yeah, but but again, the, the, one of the point the point that that Johnny just raised was you know N.K. Jemison is seen as this exception, and you go well, what about uh, Nadia Korafor? What about Nalu Hobkinson and uh, uh, Cameron yeah. Hurley? Or you know, and if you want to go back to to other authors, Andre Norton. Um, what about including Heart. what is it Barnes um, Barnes who wrote Zulu Heart way back? There were so many, so many. And and that's the thing. It's um, th there are so many amazing books, and because the, um, the the gender, ethnicity, or sexual orientation of the author is now viewed as uh, not necessarily a marketing strategy, but it's something that's being single singled out. And part of it is because, yeah, a lot of fields were white male dominated. It, it is important, and I have said this so many different times in different ways, it is important to read different narratives constructed by different people from different cultures and time periods. It is one of the best educations that you can receive because you see different ways of perceiving the world. And that's even in science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I say that, and I think people go, oh, well... I'll, I'll read a bunch of white male authors from the UK, from America, and maybe from Australia. And it, it kind of, it misses the point that a lot of these, these voices are, are getting and gaining rightful prominence within a field that has always had room for them, but they were excluded from. Yeah, the but thing. you know what the elephant in the room? What about Delaney? Samuel wow. R. Delaney, Chip. Like, amazing and so often overlooked in mainstream uh -huh. discussion. Uh -huh. so the elephant in the room, that one's never, Delaney is never included in those inclusive conversations about black writers. And black gay writer who has been producing some of the most challenging and brilliant science fiction for decades. And Chip Delaney is, is right up there with Gene Wolfe, is right up there with any of the greats that you care to name from science fiction and fantasy. Uh, Samuel R. Delaney is right up there with them, but not part of the conversation. And the thing is, those authors who we venerate, they all know who Delaney is. They all like Delaney. They 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 all respect Delaney. But we we have, and it is it's a something that adds to this problem. We have turned books and media narrative into disposable culture. That it is the focus on what is the new thing? What is the new thing? What is the new thing? I've now read it. I've now talked about it. Moving on to the next one. Chasing the fear of moving, uh, the fear of missing out. Always trying to, to catch that high, that endorphin rush. Um, that we, we forget. There's this massive history of wonderful wonderful, brilliant, important works. Authors today are standing on the shoulders of all of these brilliant authors who went before them. And it's not to say that you you 
have to read every single one from the past. It's not to say that you have to do a, a master's or a PhD in science fiction and fantasy history. No one is saying that. But there, there's so much richness in the history of science fiction and fantasy that when we approach it, not just with a, does this entertain me? But what is this book doing? What is it in conversation with? What was the time period in which it was written? What is it trying to say? How is it addressing it? How is it trying to push in different directions? Is this pushing the conversation forward? Is it engaged in an argument with something? And you know, going back to Donaldson, Donaldson in conversation and argument with Tolkien. And it's a, a different conversation and argument that China Mieville's work had with Tolkien. But also you can then bring in Le Guin and Le Guin did something very different to Tolkien. But Le Guin's work, as adult as it was in fantasy, because the Earthsea stuff was, wasn't YA or children's at the time, is now relegated to children's and YA as if it is not relevant anymore. And yet we know when we read Le Guin's work, it's, it's brilliant writing and it's engaged with very important aspects. But again, female author who... Let's let's push her to the side. Let's reduce the, the impact on the field. And she's when one of the science fiction masters. When has Taoist philosophy been for children? Sorry, Johnny? When has Taoist philosophy been for children? Le Guin wrote right off of that. So I don't get this throwing heavy lines between YA. That's a new thing. That's like the yeah. Disney Isle. That's like genderizing toys. This is all, all these divisions that we've created are new things. They were not here 40 years ago. So yeah, not to interrupt you. That's a marketing, right? Sorry, Beth, go ahead. I was that's a marketing thing. Like we're well, just... is our is our what beloved genre being driven by a marketing thing? Or by the next big controversy or the next big you know, I often watch and I've I I really see this because I don't respond. I do a lot of watching what goes on and, and I don't respond, but I see it. How many of the divisions in our genre and the fighting over the Star Wars stuff literally has been fueled by bots that want to divide us? I've seen it and I see people getting these massive arguments. So how much of this is being brought in simply to make us fight with each other? And to that point, you wonder how much of that is manufactured by social media platforms that they push you to engage and that's engagement. Uh, yes. the, the conflict is engagement. Keeps you clicking. And yet we have these big shrieking bloody flights over it and people make enemies. And now we have this marketing thing going on and we've created more divisions. How much of that is driven by social media and marketing and clickbait? I would say a large, large part of it. And also, you know, I think everyone's heard someone someone say some version of this phrase, which is nuance is, is lost. Where did nuance go? And there's a lot of truth to that um, because, you know, I, I did a video a little while ago on my channel where um, I think it was last year, I had burnout essentially from being online and I disappeared for a month and a half ish and I got off Twitter and uh, it's amazing what that can do for you. <laughs> when you take a, a step back and I made a video when I came back, just talking about how I think it was specifically about the booktube community and, and book Twitter and things like that. But uh, talking about how 
things go off the rails pretty quickly and we we don't view each other as a person when you're talking on Twitter. <laughs> it's just, Twitter's just an example, but social media platforms in general, I think. These types of conversations, I think, are generally quite productive. And I've seen a lot of video chats that talk about difficult topics like we've been doing today in a very productive way. But that almost never happens if you don't see the person's face. I think as humans, we're very visual. And if you can't see the person you're talking to, you're more likely to just go off on them where I can't imagine if you're in a chat like this going off the way that some people do on Twitter or, you know, non-visual platforms. So I think these types of discussions are really important because I've been doing this now with Steve and PL and, you know, AP, Weed and Beth. I've been involved in these types of discussions now for months and I don't feel burnout because we're not going at each other's throats. Um, and I think we can disagree in a way that, that doesn't leave you feeling that kind of feel, you know, the burnout feeling. So I think, you know, that video is still true today and my thoughts are still, I think the same. Um, and it's good to, to unplug sometimes. <laughs> but but <laughs> to know? add to that, um, like to, to comment basically on the, the point that you just made that the art of subtlety, the art of nuance, and even the art of polite discourse has been lost in this age of melodrama. Um, and that, that's what it is, has been ratcheted up. And we can trace that back to the, the early 1980s, uh, the introduction of the 24-hour news cycle on the, the cable mm -hmm. news channels, the introduction of sensationalist tabloid headlines to try and grab attention. And when you build that into a system, when the first couple of people who did it, it's, it's shocking. But then again, you, you have this uh, progression, you have this acceleration, you have to be more and more shocking. And you have to increase outrage. You create an outrage machine because if everything has been sensationalized, um, then your clickbait no longer stands out. So you have to go even further. And therefore, you have to become more and more outrageous in order to stand out. We went from news being uh, recounted. This is what happened to now it's, well, is it a left or a right channel? because they're going to narrativize the entire thing um, according to a political ideology. People have become more and more tribal. And I, Taylor, I think you're exactly right. When we are anonymous, when it's just a, a handle, people can become very, very bold and uh, they put their outrage onto they spew it onto uh twitter or reddit or wherever but the thing is if you were if you actually met them in real life and sat them down they might hold those same beliefs but generally all of those people when you speak to them they'll go oh no but i can see your point of view and yeah you know well i just was angry and i was i i, I maybe was a wee bit over the top but we never think about that and i i've done this as well i have reacted angrily to something and typed out furiously on my keyboard and sent the message. And then, of course, about half an hour later, completely regretted it because I went, why was I that? I should have calmed down, thought about it, and then thought, am I going to try and convince this person? Am I going to try and just ignore them? Or is this a, I acknowledge that they have a different opinion and go, listen, fair enough, but I don't agree. That there are different strategies. What are we going to do? How are we going to phrase it? But Twitter is... So many characters. You, you can't get into nuanced debate. 
Neil Gaiman came out of the Rings of Power sort of special screening thing and said that when he was a schoolboy and first picked up the Silmarillion, it wasn't the prequel he was looking for to the Lord of the Rings at that time. Uh, and the Rings of Power show is very much that big bombastic prequel that schoolboy him had been looking for at that time. And you go, yeah, that seems fair enough. He's he's sort of saying it's acting in that way in the in the same vein. I can understand what he just said. The number of people who replied to his tweet saying, "Why do you hate the Silmarillion?" You go, that is that is literally not what he said. The reason I know this, I can read the words of the tweet. <laughs> he did not say that he hated the Silmarillion. Neil Gaiman has spoken uh, numerous times about his fondness for. Tolkien's work, all of it, all of the legendarium. And yet people chose to interpret what he had said in the worst possible way with the worst intentions attached to it and actively misread what was there to add in and project meaning onto it that was never intended and is not there. But they do that. And you go, this is a problem that projection onto text, misreading, has become so common. We have become so media illiterate that these misunderstandings and miscommunications happen more and more frequently. And when you combine that with the outrage machine, when you combine it with let's go as big and as sensationalist as we can in our ridiculous claims, that you can see it is a disaster. So have we handed our choices to the pundits? Honestly, because, you know, as as an author that likes to write nuanced fantasy in nuanced language, you have to fight to do that these days because you're going to have hundreds of people jumping on you, complaining that you're not necessarily writing to the common denominator. And I'm not knocking writing to the common denominator. I like a fluffy escapist book or something as a linear read for an airplane or when I'm stressed, just as much as anybody. But when I want a nuance work, by gosh, nothing else will answer for that. But you're going against a tremendous amount of pressure in the industry, in the readership, in the what's new, what's bigger, faster, better. You have to fight for that. You have to fight for that nuance position and not take the pundit surface, take all the time. And that's what's being pumped into your veins and in the case of Twitter, you don't know who's talking, if they're a real person, if it's somebody who's eight or somebody who's 80. Mm -hmm. And so it's really easy to react from the knee jerk. And, but until you stop and think, who is this person really? It may be somebody hiding behind six handles. And you don't even know who you're talking to. I think, Jenny, you know what, what we talk, we use these words a lot, but I think what we've been talking about is essentially three things. Nuance, yes. Intent, but also ask. So, you know, what we fail to do now oftentimes is ask. We don't look, we, we see something, we don't ask what the intent was behind it. Why did you say that? Why did you do that? What did you mean by that? Um, you know, we are much more willing to make assumptions and move forward on the basis of those, of those assumptions then simply ask, look for clarification, get interpretation, 
you know, ask, you know, um, Jenny, one of, the, one of you know that, that, you know, I love your works and, but the, the work, the one book that will always stick with me, no matter what, all your books resonate with me, but, but to rise hell's chasm. And that is written about bigotry, prejudice, you know, and, and, and really has stuck with me. And you write about uh, a black character that um, experiences those things. Right, it's picking up, yep, sticking right, right next to our our esteemed critical dragon, sitting right next to it, next to him. Um, but you know, if someone bothered to ask, "Hey, Jenny, why did you write about that?" rather than saying, "Oh, well, you know, you have no right to write about that as a white person. Why, why dare you write that as a white person? What, what is that about? What, what are you saying about our? What, you know, what? Ask." Right, um, you know, I write about a white, bigoted, homophobic. Yeah, no kidding. Prince. Wow. What? Ask me why, right? Ask yeah. me why, right? I so, think you make. Oh, sorry, sorry, Pia. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think you make a really good point there, and I would say, in certain circles, in certain social media plat platforms, I guess the preposition there is on, on certain social media platforms, uh, the the action of asking is demonized. You know, you get met with educate yourself. Um, and that happens in all spheres. I'm not just talking, you know, the woke sphere, whatever phrase you want to use. I'm talking about all genres, all, all spaces. You tend to get met with that kind of backlash. Um, oh my God, there was something else I wanted to say. What was it? <laughs> it left my, it's left my brain. Uh, but I do think it is important to be inquisitive. Oh, right. That's what I was going to say. So um, when AP was saying, you know, he's had those moments, those anger keyboard moments, I think all of us have. And I've also done the same thing. Um, when I first got on Twitter, I was much more, you know, engaging in that. Um, and I've, I've backed off since then. You know, there's a there's a need for discourse. You know, things do need to be talked about and discussed. And so, not saying anything in itself can be an issue, right? So that balance is very difficult. And I think you know we're all human. So all of us have been that angry person, or maybe the person that has gatekeeped or something. But I think it's that that inquisitive nature. You need to turn it on yourself too. Ask yourself, why am I doing this? Um, you know, that kind of self check. Um, there's another approach. Be demonized. Yeah, you know? there's another approach that you can take to this besides just challenging somebody and asking them. And when the world moves slower, and I would get angry letters worried that I had used some kind of language they didn't like, or that I had written this, and how dare I? I handled it really differently. I would write them a note back, and I'd say, "Thank you very much for taking the time to let me know how you feel." I really respect that you felt strongly enough to let me know it. So I appreciate you're giving me the point of view. And every single time I got back a response and they, I learned so much from that because the responses came in two flavors. One was they absolutely doubled down and labasted me 50 times harder and 50 times nastier. And it turned out my father taught me never to do what you're doing. So their anger came from they were repressed already. Nothing I can do about that. Or they said, oh my God, I'm really sorry. I was in a really bad frame of mind. I was furious. I shouldn't have written you that letter. Thank you for your gracious response. And here's how I really felt. 
and it turned them to them into another person. So if you treat that person on the other side of that rage like a human being, often you'll see the person that you can empathize with, but you have to give them a chance to express that rage and get it out of the way and not condemn them for it. But when you're responding to a Twitter handle that's a troll that's not even a human being, that's part of a click farm that's designed to create divisiveness, you're not gonna get that human response. And so that's what I find bewildering about social media is you you can't necessarily tell if you're talking to a human being or someone that's trying to stir up controversy and hurt a, a minority demographic or or women or whatever their issue is. It isn't always a person. Yeah, but 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 you know I I I, I and I agree with you, Jan. But I also say too that you know it's almost what a contradiction that we live in an age where. You can find out almost everything about anybody. You can find about almost everything about what they said. You know, the statements they make are there for time immemorial. They are 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 in cyberspace forever. And if if an author or a celebrity or someone says something today, you can go back and look at, as AP said, the million and one things they said prior to that about that subject, and probably form an opinion that what they're saying is probably not what you're thinking, right? But yet we jump to oh well it must mean this well but but I I read a book the other day by a well-known author, uh, fantastic author and um, you know it, it could be construed you know based on the language and the type of things he wrote in his book that perhaps this is misogynistic, right? But I thought wait a minute I've seen this author before I've I've seen a few interviews from him you know I think we're on the wrong track here why don't I just look at some of the stuff that he said about this topic about his own book and see and as and as soon as i watch a couple of videos totally dispelled that notion out the door nope he wrote this to the contrary he was trying to depict the misogyny totally get it but i did a little bit of homework i did a little bit of research i didn't just go and say because that stuff is available it's out there right we live in an, in an age where you can find almost anything that anybody said you know for over the last 10 years but we don't do that so often. We just go, hey. So, you know, it's sad that that's, that's the case. It's, it's really unfortunate. I think there's that's actually another a point form to... of asking. Sorry, AP, I was just saying oh. that's another form of asking, you know, doing, doing your homework, you know. So, you know, there's the whole educate yourself. I mean, there's some truth to that, the idea that maybe you should look into something before just asking. But that, I think that's in the same vein of being inquisitive, right? It's a form of that. So. Go ahead, AP. That's a great point. And it brings to mind something else about the tone deafness of typing a response on the internet anywhere. I mean, I go back to listening to one of AP's presentations on how he didn't get Joe Abercrombie at first because he didn't get the tone of the humor. And I fell in the same trap. So I was like, yeah. <laughs> and it's like I didn't get Patrick O'Brien until I realized it wasn't about the nautical stuff at all because he never got on a sailboat. This is obvious. He did a lot of research, but he never sailed. It was all about the interpersonal relationships and the intricacy of the humor between that. And I'm reading right now Ken Liu's Grace of Kings. And it took me probably a quarter of the book to realize how tongue in cheek he is treating certain old fables from Oriental, I mean, Asian culture and Japanese or Chinese or wherever. I'm not an expert on this and I'm fumbling here. But yeah, Asian culture, 
I realized this is the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell of fantasy for that culture. But it took me a quarter of the book to figure it out because the tone of it isn't obvious to me coming from my culture, which is in some cases a world away, but not really because I kept seeing some of these legends crop up and I read a lot of things as a kid. And I said, oh, I've seen that. I've seen the, the scroll and the fish and I've seen. So it's so hard sometimes. We can go off the deep end on a book or go off the deep end on a post or go off the deep end on something because we don't understand the tone of voice it's coming from. So a lot of the haters of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell aren't getting the satire and the parody of what that author was trying to attack. So how much is this is a problem? I see so many times where a reviewer will go left or right because they missed the tone of a book and I'm as guilty of that as every single one. And Johnny, I think that, first of all, that that's an excellent point in that you know, we're all fallible. We are all human. We can make mistakes. It is increasingly rare that we are willing to admit, particularly in public and particularly on record like this, for uh, prosperity that, oh yeah, uh, for posterity, yeah, I, I made a mistake. And thank you so much for reminding everyone about the fact that I completely misread Joe Abercrombie's uh, The Hero. <laughs> But I am open about that mistake because I think it is actually an important point that we shouldn't we shouldn't be ashamed that we have made a mistake. What we we need to recognize the mistake, recognize that we are capable of making a mistake first, right? Then recognize the mistake and then try to figure out why we did it and make amends for it if it has caused issue for someone else and try to improve and not make that mistake again in in the future but one of the the issues i think that synthesizes a lot of uh, some of the aspects that we've just been talking about is that a lot of social media is instantaneous it is instantaneous gratification it is the need for a knee-jerk reaction to immediately reply and we don't we can reply in the moment and therefore we're composing on the fly and i don't know about you but i am not naturally articulate that i can effectively communicate every single nuance of what i'm trying to get across without maybe you know taking a minute to think about it and when we tweet when we reply to a reddit thread this is an author's experience this all the time where someone misreads their work reads it in a different tone and one of the things that was I, I try to remember to do, and I don't always, is if something has annoyed me, if I get angry at something, draft a response and then put it aside. And when Johnny was talking about receiving these letters, think of the amount of time. So the, the letter came out. You get the letter. You read it. You write a response. Do you write it that day? Maybe. Do you write it the next day? But it's a slower process. That letter then makes its way back to that person, by which stage they may have calmed down. And they read this and go, I am so embarrassed. I was having a bad day. I wrote that. And I think, you know, Johnny articulated that response. But when we have social media, there isn't that moment where you have spent 20 minutes writing a letter and then looked at it and gone, am I happy with, well, you Maybe I rewrite this. Maybe this isn't worth paying for a stamp. Social media. Oh, well, just I'll just type it out there. Go done. And again, when you combine that 
with outrage, when you combine it with sensationalism, when you combine it with a decrease in media literacy, when you combine it with a, a reduction in the number of critical terms and descriptive terms that we use, that we use buzzwords that have are now multifaceted in how they are deployed, depending on who is speaking and why. And we, we've retreated from all of this. We have created systematically for the last 40, 50 years, feelings of anti-intellectualism because, oh, academics are all terrible and they gatekeep and, oh, you're just trying to prove how smart you are. We, all of the, again, and it's a lot of these things add together and it's incrementally impact one another. But isn't it fan wars and people attacking each other? I see them just as often attacking another reader for loving something they don't like. It goes back to the to the women getting dumped on for writing romance. It goes back to those people who love the sort of truth and everybody jumps on them and screams and yells, or those people like this particular iteration of the hero's journey that was taken from Tolkien, but it came a generation later or two generations later. And we don't remember Tolkien, but this was our first encounter with it. I learned to be humble about opinions on books because I found if you listen to the people who love that work, it will unlock what it was that you missed. In the case of Patrick O'Brien, I was expecting adult Horatio Honeblower. And it wasn't that. It wasn't even close to that. So I got madder and madder and madder because my expectations were wrong for the book. My husband picked up on what that book was about and fell in love with it. And listening to him, I realized, boy, did I miss the boat, literally, ha ha, terrible pun. I missed it on this one. So I've learned on that I bounce off to try to listen to the people who love them and see if maybe I was in the wrong headspace for it or the wrong period of life for it or the wrong coming at it from the wrong angle. It was just not what I expected that day. And based on what people love about it, I can then make a more informed opinion about whether I should go back and take a better look at this or not. But, you know, it's just funny, and I and I go back to this ask intent thing, but Steve and AP and Beth and Taylor and I can all attest being part of the community. We have unprecedented access in this age to authors, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, you couldn't just go on so-and-so author's Twitter account and DM him and say, hey, I thought this about your book, or I saw this, or, and hey, you know, it's, it, you could not do that, right? And potentially, depending on the author, you could get an instantaneous response about whatever your question, your, your query, or your issue, your problem is. And 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 that's, but again, it's, it's this contradiction that we can do that more now than ever. We don't have to wait a month for a letter to come across, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. We don't have to wait for, you know, the next major book fair. We don't have to wait for it. You can, you know, email, DM, Instagram message, Facebook message. And, and now, it, you know, so many authors now because of the changing environment with authors having to market their books. A lot of authors are so much more accessible. So, so when you have a question or you think, ask them, 
right? And 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 Beth, you know, you uh, you've been dealing with authors for, you know, how many authors could you could you DM Beth to ask them a question about their book? <laughs> Thousands, right? Like like you know, but I guess that's that's where we are. I feel like. You know, coming back to AP's point of like a while ago in this chat of reading, allowing us a distance to talk, to think about our reality, that reality of being able to reach out to authors is both a good and bad thing. It's it's both of those things. You know, that's how, you know, Steve has this amazing page doing in the first place, you know, uh, because of that accessibility. But on the other side, you know, it leads to a lot of politicizing an author and things like that. Um, you know, and the, I don't know how aware you guys were of um, the own voices tag, uh, how that kind of blew up uh, because people were then um, gatekeeping stories and making, you know, checking that the author has the right, the right to write that story. Like a couple authors got outed for their sexuality um, because people were like, well, are you this sexuality? How can you write this story? And then they were like, well, I didn't want to come out, but no, okay. Yes, I am of that sexuality. So, you know, it, it has, it's a dichotomy, right? And it comes back to two things can be true at once. You know, something can be both good and bad. And, you know, I've talked to PL about, you know, Adran Kingdom, how your, your book, one of the things that it makes me think of is that two things can be true at once. So I think reading really does help us be able to see that reality because we can see it in the stories that we read, or at least for me anyway. And then that I'm a, I, that allows me to take that idea and, you know, view our actual world that way. Um, and that's, I don't have an answer. <laughs> I don't think anyone has an answer because this is just reality. It's both good and bad. Uh, but, you know, I think it's important to be able to recognize that that can be true. It can be both a positive and a negative thing. But also to, to build on that point, because I, I think that's an excellent point, Taylor, that um, if, if you think that like, authors are human beings as well, so if I think of the, the number of messages that I get on Twitter is thankfully very, very small, very small. People, people don't send me messages, which is good because I'm not always on Twitter. I forget to check Twitter and I get back to people maybe two weeks after they had DM'd me because I forgot to click on an icon. But I don't get that much. Now, if you think of an author who has sold 10,000 books, they have sold 10,000 copies. And they're on Twitter and it's great and you can tweet at them. But if we come to expect authors to give us personal attention, we have to remember to think about it from an author's perspective. And this is not putting an author up on a pedestal and saying they are some god, but think about it from their perspective. They're going about their day as well. And they cannot respond to every single tweet. They cannot respond to every single DM. And it's one of the reasons why those events like uh, an Ask Me Anything on Reddit or when an author does an appearance and they take questions at the end, those events are great for that. Or they have a, a website where they have a frequently asked questions section and they can, they can answer these things. But we have actually encouraged a, a society of, well, I want to know this thing now. And so look at the number of Reddit threads where if you go into a subreddit for a specific book series and you go over the last three weeks, there will be, should I read this book? Like, Dude, literally, you're on a, a fan thread for that book. It's, 
recommend something to me. You look at all of the other threads that all start with that. I say, oh yeah, but I wanted a personal recommendation. You go, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that you were royalty, that we all had to stop what we were doing and, and go No, they're over the main character, and, AP. They're the main character. And, and this is the thing that we, we have, we're so focused on this self, the, the, the egocentrism of our worldview and the pandemic, you know, played into this a lot where we were separated from people. We were trapped in our houses. It, it has had an impact on our psyche. But sometimes we forget that we are not the center of the universe. Obviously, I am, and that's fine. But no one else is. And because no one else is the center of the universe, we can't act like we are all the center of the universe and expect people to drop everything. The, I didn't like this book. Defend it to me. Like, no, you didn't like the book. Fine, go away. Stop bothering me. Um, the, we, the number of times we think that other people owe us. And you go, well, no, they don't. And we forget to think about it from the fact that the other person on the other side of the screen is a human being as well with their own life, their own concerns, their own time pressures. And just because we want something does not mean that we deserve it or that someone should spend their time catering to that. And taking a little bit of time to, I have this question buzzing around in my head. Well, maybe it'll be answered in the next four chapters. Why don't I just read on? Instead of immediately going, I've read the first three chapters and this doesn't make sense. Congratulations, you've watched the first 15 minutes of a film. And what? <laughs> you expect to understand everything about it. A little bit Wait. of product of the social media coming in strong for, because I played in a pipe band, okay? And it had a lot of younger players. I mean, when I started playing bagpipes competitively, there were no women Women were not playing in pipe bands. This did not happen. I had to fight my way tooth and claw by outplaying to get into three bands. Now, there are lots of women playing in pipe bands. This is not unusual at all. So there were a younger generation coming up. And what I noticed is they were so brought up on Facebook and all the different social media, they were used to communicating with each other and getting opinions on what they were doing. And they they'd lost... They were so used to having a crowd move with them. Thinking for themselves was difficult. So you get these people, should I read this book? When you can go to read inside this book on Amazon and actually sample the prose and browse it and figure it out for yourself, they're not brought up that way. They, they really do crowd decide what to do. So when they fling out, oh, please recommend me something, they're crowdsourcing everything in their lives differently than we did. So it doesn't make sense to me because I didn't grow up that way, but I can understand that they're running on sort of a different paradigm. Does that make sense? And that maybe I'm just, I'm the wrong generation. This is a new way to think about things, but, and, and that's okay. So maybe I'm wrong, but well, it's, it's only, some of I, the I, people I, grew up that way. What do they think? Because I observed this, but I don't know. I I mean, it kind of goes back to it could be positive and negative. So I definitely agree with you that, you know, there is a lack of critical thought sometimes in my generation. I will admit that. 
but I do think that like BookTube, for example, the recommendations that you can get from people, that connectivity has expanded my reading exponentially. So if I was just looking on Amazon and uh, going by what Amazon recommended me, that's kind of almost um, an echo chamber in and of itself because it's recommending me what I've already looked at, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if I watch other people on BookTube who read differently than me or the book club that I mentioned earlier, one of the members of the book club is just a running joke because her and I agree on literally nothing um, except for the Dandelion Dynasty. So you know it's good. Uh, but the two of us have exact opposite tastes. But because I engage with her and because I watch people who read more translated works than I do, or, you know, you can pick whatever thing you want to talk about. But because I engage with people who don't read what I read, I my reading, this bookshelf is from booktube you know like gunmetal gods i would never have heard about gunmetal yeah. gods if it were for steve getting that interview with him i was coming know? from the angle of i have these five books on my shelf which should i read first okay mm -hmm. yeah yeah from, i talk to people to expand my reading that's a different arena the one that i think mm. you and i were talking about was the one what should, should i read this book Mm -hmm. in the forum. That's, I mean, that's a very fair point. And I, I think you guys are correct in that, you know, you can look it up yourself. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. And it's, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to come across as a crusty old guy saying, oh, you shouldn't talk and you shouldn't ask. I want people to be inquisitive, but sometimes the, the answer is far more obvious than we think. We don't need other people. Um, mm. And particularly when there are already other threads with exactly the same question and you go mm -hmm. all you have to do is scroll down for 30 seconds and you will see that your question is already there but it's no i'm not going to look i'm not even going to do the minimum amount for a general query no if it is a very specific query that that is of course brilliant crowdsourcing information two heads are better than one Five heads are better than two. Go to the entire internet, the entire fandom. And you go, this is amazing because everyone will go, like, I cannot remember every single word written in every single novel that I have ever read. But I know if I go online, I can find someone who is an expert in that novel. And so I go, I have this general thing that I kind of remember. And they'll go, oh, you're like, you need page 97. At the bottom, second paragraph, uh, it says that thing. That's the point that you're looking for. Because we have access now across national, international boundaries, time zones, uh, which are obviously very important to me at this time of night. But <laughs> we, we have unparalleled access and communication. And it is such, I, and I think sometimes if you've grown up with it, you don't realize how amazing and special it is. But it sometimes functions as a crutch instead of thinking for yourself. But again, it's not a binary. It's not a yes or no. It's using it judiciously, the understanding the strengths and weaknesses of something. Um, I agree with you there. We need to use both. We need to use all of our all of these facets. We need to ask, learn investigate if you can and if it's if it's worthwhile and if it's if it's something that you know um the author is willing to talk to you for example ask the author look up videos on the author look at magazine articles you know the information is out there if 
if, as AP said, you just do a little bit of of work, right? Especially in this age where, you know, it's almost limitless. I can read almost anything that's ever been said about Jenny's books. If I have the time to do it, I can go to the internet and find it. I can watch almost every video that's ever made about about Jenny, her works, interviews with her. You can watch this po- this podcast. It's all out there. So mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, I've been back in about two minutes. I, okay. you know, they always ask you the question, and if they just looked at the menu and clicked down the menu, they'd find the exact answer. So mm-hmm. there's two ways to use the internet. There's the I'm really lazy and I don't want to bother. And then there's really using it wisely and digging deep and getting the capacity out of it that's possible. But you know, you know what we need, Beth, Beth, one thing I, I, I give Beth so much credit for and that I haven't seen in a lot of blogs is that Beth allows multiple reviews on the same book from yes. different bloggers, right? Mm-hmm. I've never seen that before. Why is that important and special? Because obviously people have different opinions about the same book. And I, I, I want to hear what Beth has to say about, about more of why she does that. But, but, you know, isn't that something we all should be looking for? Like not just one opinion of a book, but multiple perspectives and Beth, you know, you can talk. I'd love to hear what you, what you have to say about, about that. I don't think I don't think a lot of sites do that because it damages um, search engine optimization. So when you have multiple reviews on a website, you don't come up as high on um, Google. If somebody were to search, you know, like a review of, of Janie's book, um, I don't care. I think I think it it adds depth to the conversation about a book if you have people who like it, people who don't like it. Everybody's got their own voice too. Everybody writes in their own style. They're all looking for different things and they're talking about that. And then I link them on the, on the site so people can go to all these different reviews and see how they feel about it. I think it's very enriching. I think it's good. That's a really good point that you made because I was shocked when Beth was like, oh yeah, you can add your review. I was like, it's already on, on, before I go back, she's like, that's fine. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I think we have like, like six reviews from Crystal's book and every one of them is completely different. And every one of them has found something new and interesting to add to the conversation. Mm-hmm. A really, really helpful fantasyliterature.com does that. They have a mm-hmm. stable of reviewers and they have, that explains why they don't come up on a search, but I could read the various reviews and I could peg which one ha- shared my taste and I could peg the ones that didn't share my p- taste as do I really want to experiment, read this book. But so I wish there were more sites. So kudos to you, Beth, for doing that because that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Eric had a, a question. Is death of the author dead considering how active authors are on various platforms? Well, I mean, I, I think I'd love to hear what Jenny has to say because you know, um, with 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 four decades or more in, in writing, she's unfortunately, you know, some of her contemporaries have passed away, or some aren't as active as they were anymore because of age, et cetera. And you know, like I know that I cling to a lot of authors who, you know, have passed on because I think part of my generation, you feel okay, you know, that's 
that's that's the cycle of life and it's coming for us all and you know you look back and you have more years behind than you have ahead and you start start clinging to these to some of those those works just by virtue of the fact that you know um the authors are gone and, and you want to honor their work and you remember how much you loved it but i'm interested to hear what jenny has to say about about that specifically also i i'll let I don't want to connect it or cut anyone off, but I was waiting for AP to come back because I got to go to work. <laughs> so I got to leave. <laughs> but this has been a great conversation. Um, I'm sorry that I was sick the last time that I was supposed to talk to most of you guys. <laughs> uh, but this has been delightful as always. So I hope you guys have a great rest of the convo and I'll talk to you all soon. Yeah. Thank you, Taylor. Take care. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Really enjoyed meeting you. To go back to your question, um, Paul, the ones that really burn my heart aren't the ones that have died because I spend a lot of time reminding people of ones that have died. It's the ones who are still bloody living and still writing who have been pushed so far under the radar because the birth of the internet of right around 2000 doesn't have enough information on them. And so the algorithm swallows them they never show up on, you would like this book on Amazon because the algorithm just completely ate because they were pre-internet or 90s or very close to when the internet became very influential. And there are a slew of them still writing, writing incredibly quality work. They're often doing it on smaller presses or doing it on their own because they, they're still alive, they're still vigorous, they're still writing amazing stuff. And to show you how amazing, everybody ignored Martha Wells until Murderbot, but she wrote solid quality books all her life. So there was decades worth of backlist of hers that people overlooked until boom, she got Murderbot. Yay, one pulled out of the, out of the muck. But there's so many who are still living and they're on Twitter or they're on social media, but they're completely overlooked because Pre-internet, there isn't enough compiled information on them for people to find them. And that's where the fantasyliterature.net site really shines. They were one of the few that actually took the time to research and list all those titles and list them accurately. And that blew me away because so many sites sawed off at pre-2000 was pretty much gone unless you were a superstar. Um, and I, I John Clute, oh, sorry. I say I have I have somebody that I follow that fits exactly what um, Jenny's talking about. Do you guys know Pat Cadigan? Yes, totally. Yes, yeah. A, a lot of people don't, and she's the queen of cyberpunk. <laughs> Judith Tarr, C.J. Cherry, um, who else? Um, R.A. McAvoy. Wow, she won the World Fantasy Award. Ellen Kushner, she's still very, you know, there's just lists and lists and lists of these people who are, yes. Yes. Still yes. writing and doing brilliant stuff. You know, Kit Carr is another one. And I just feel bad for them because often they're overlooked. I mean, I sort of burst onto the BookTuber community recently because a couple of people who are on this screen took the time to mention it. And so suddenly, you know, wow, I got discovered but a lot of these other writers have not been simply because pre-2000 and they're very much still writing. And so I would love to see some of those people not be lost until they're dead. And we see the obit and blasted locusts because 
there is still some wonderful work coming out from them. And it's hard to get that seen or paid attention to. I have plans to tackle some of Pat Cadigan's work this year, just to get her up on the site and stuff. She's, she's brilliant. She makes me happy every time I see her uh, tweets every day. She talks about kicking the day's ass every single day. I just love it. <laughs> uh, interestingly, uh, Pat Cadigan, not only a fantastic, brilliant and highly influential author, She's mm -hmm. an incredibly nice, wonderful person. And she is so supportive of other people, of other authors. She reaches, she is a really genuinely beautiful person. And I think one of the, one of the downsides of suddenly having access to everything is it's, if someone gave you a choice between 10 books, you can have, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll think about these 10. If someone puts a thousand books in front of you, you're you're spoiled for choice. Then you have ten thousand books, and you go, you know what? I'll I'll just it gets lost in the noise, and that is the downside. That is the downside, I think, to so much being available. And I was going to mention uh, John Clute, and I I can't remember the the names of the other connect, but they did the science fiction encyclopedia and the encyclopedia of fantasy. And I think both of those are now online that you can you can search. And there are entries, and they continue to update them with uh, lots of different information, not only about uh, authors and books and tropes and concepts and academics and theories, that these are amazing encyclopedias that they have made available. And I had the, the hard copy originals of them, which are these huge tomes, but now they're online and we can access them. But until you know about it, you don't know to look there. And I think one of the like one of the frustrations I have with my channel is I never have enough time to do all the things that I want. I am behind on finishing up my read reread of the Malazan Book of the Fallen and discussions with Philip Chase. Because my next big one is going through Johnny's major series that and i have been i have been promising to do this for so long i had thought i was going to start in january but unfortunately life happened and number of things have happened this year and it has been pushed and pushed and pushed because i just i haven't had time and then yeah. someone says oh have you read this book yet and you go yeah I, I i will get to it but in trying to balance all of these things i i, I keep running out of time there are so many authors whose work I was incredibly privileged to have the time to read when I was studying because part of my entire week was focused on being in that library, getting those books, reading those books, researching the authors. And that is a privilege that not every reader gets to have. Whereas now I am balancing full-time job, freelance job, uh, trying to do a booktube channel, spend time with my wife, um, spend time <laughs> seeing my family, that these time constraints, suddenly I am very time poor and I don't have the time to sit down uh, sometimes to go, I'm just going to sit and read uninterrupted for four hours. And I can understand the attraction of audiobooks because I go, right, I can put on an audiobook and I can do the dishes and I can vacuum and I can get my cleaning done while I'm listening to an audiobook. 
But then I'm not focusing on the text the way that I do when I read. And for me personally, that isn't as good an experience. I acknowledge and I am a firm advocate. Audiobooks are brilliant. They are a great way to access texts and they can be so important for so many people. But for me, I to get the most out of a book, I need to take my time and read it and spend time with it. And I think this is the, the sheer variety, the number of new books and new authors that we are discovering every day, even if they've been around for 20, 30, 40 years, because they are new to us and we can still be excited about it. We can still want to talk about it. And I love the fact that there are YouTube channels dedicated to single authors and single series. That's fantastic. There are other YouTube channels that are all about, here's the latest stuff. There are YouTube channels dedicated to, here's independently published or here's self-published works. There are YouTube channels that are dedicated to all sorts of different conversations. And that is phenomenal. It is amazing and brilliant communities being brought together. The downside is there's so much of it that we naturally have to curate. And that means an author who is important to us, who we think is incredibly important, should be read, is going to be overlooked, is not going to get the recognition that we think they deserve. And that they deserve but we are now operating in a giant sea of information and you know that's it's part of why outrageous statements and sensation this is the greatest novel ever written like that that's never going to be true ever this is the most amazing author who has ever lived no but it's shouting to get through the noise but if that works once then other people are going to copy it. And the next thing you know, you have 200 videos all using that. And so it's this constant war of trying to bring attention to things and show people and putting the videos out there or the reviews out there that allow people when they come across it. Or if you like one of my favorite sets of videos, if you like this book, you may like. And I love that because, uh, for instance, like with Stephen Erickson's Malazan Book of the Fallen, a lot of people know, A, that Ian C. Esselmont is the co-creator of that world and he has his own Malazan books. So that gets mentioned. And then they go, on. Oh, they were both influenced by Glenn Cook. Glenn Cook, whose books had nearly disappeared from fan awareness, suddenly got a resurgence because of some of the popularity associated with Stephen Erickson's books. But people go, oh, if you like Malazan, you'll like Glenn Cook's books. You, It depends. It depends on the aspects that you like about the Malazan Book of the Fallen. Because Glenn Cook's books are very much in that tradition of uh, Vietnam War fiction, of the grunts I view, very military-focused, ju slightly journalistic style, but with a very distinctive narrative voice. And if you like that, that darker, grittier, militaristic approach to fantasy with morality is a very nebulous and mutable concept in Glenn Cook's world. 
those are the aspects that you talk about. But if you want it as, oh, it's a grand epic, the way that the Malazan Book of the Fallen is this grand epic, and, and talk about those aspects, you're, you're going to be so disappointed when you pick up Glenn Cook. Um, and taking the time when we do, and I love those videos of if you like this, if you like this for these reasons, then this book might be right. But if you like it for different reasons, then this book. And suddenly that opens the conversation and it brings people in. It raises awareness about these great texts and authors and works of literature that we love. You know what? When, what age did you wake up to the fact that you were never going to get to read all the books you wanted to read in the lifetime that you had? And by yourself. I'm, I'm there now. I am there now. I, I am, I, you know, I, I, Jenny, I just started reading your work last year. Can you believe that? Like last year, right? And and if I look at, I just started reading Malazan this year, right? I have not read Malazan. And, 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 and again, it's not about who considers what's the fancy books you have to read. This is about gay humans. Just if you asked me, 10 years ago and gave me 10 series that I would have thought I would have read as a fancy enthusiast by age 53. I would have said this book, this book, this book. And that would have included Malazan, The Wars of Light to Shadow. I can name you 50 series that I thought I would have read by now. But as AP said, time, right? There's um, a relation to this, though. That is, we live on this huge planet. It's enormous. Think of how many billions of people live on this planet. If you consider what a publisher considers a runaway success, that's maybe 100,000 copies. So one of you, one of you can reach 100,000 people by starting a little seed out there. And it's like a dandelion. It flies in the wind and you don't know where it's going to land. So you don't, your influence doesn't have to reach very far to take an obscure writer or a new writer or an independent writer or work like yours, Paul, which is totally incredible, doesn't have to travel too far to reach that 100,000 people. So even though you can't do it all, you can do enough. And my admiration goes to things like what Steve is doing with the page shooting and the Friday conversation. We brought four people from immensely different backgrounds, different generations, different cultural, different everything. We're international today. <laughs> and AP was willing to stay up really late to do this, so right. I handed to it. Thanks, AP. Thank you. We're all on the same screen. Think of how many dandelion seeds we just flung out there because the dedicated followers to each of you are going to tune into this. The dedicated readers are going to be influenced by what goes on on this screen tonight. Maybe we'll reach that 400,000. Maybe we'll pull a name out of a hat that, that was lost under the radar. So I would say never, ever, ever underestimate the power of reach that you have. Even if you only have 30 followers, they all have 10, 20 friends and they have 10, 20 friends. So if you go from the heart and you strike your enthusiasm from the right chord or the right, right moment where it, something grabs you, that's the most infectious, contagious thing that you can do. That's the best part of being a book blogger, or I would assume yeah. that. Yes. Booktuber. I love connecting with people. Well, uh, to answer Johnny's question, when I realized that I was never going to get to read all of the books that I wanted to read 
when I was a kid, I used to go into my local bookstore. It was a Waterstones. And they had a relatively, well, I thought it was huge, but it's actually a relative, it was a relatively small science fiction and fantasy section. And I was like, I would go in and uh, with my pocket money, with money from part-time jobs, I would go in and I would buy books. And I got to know the bookseller in charge of that section. And she used to let me see the titles that they were ordering. And I went, oh, um, can you order? And I would list out these things. And she would order additional copies. She went, if AP's reading them, they are likely to sell. Um, because it was just what I was reading at the time. And apparently I was just reading what everyone else was. But I thought that was, you know, I was actually getting a good education in, in fantasy literature. And then when I went to university and I was studying it, and I went, I have a good handle on this. And then I met people who were specialists in the field. And I went, I don't have a good handle on this. And it was like the floor just dropped out below me as suddenly these people who were going, no, but AP, the, the fantasy genre didn't start in 1980. Um, I, no, admittedly, I'd read Tolkien and Donaldson and uh, Zelazny and uh, some other very prominent works, but my view of it was a very UK centric because it was international bestsellers that the UK was stocking as well as UK mm -hmm. authors that heavily influenced what my perception of the genre was. And so when I picked my PhD topic, which was trying to narrow it down to basically the 1980s and 1990s, I was taking a very small, in my estimation, how naive I was, but the 1980s to the 1990s, to try to look at distilling the fantasy paradigm and the impact that role-playing games and uh, ludic narrative had had on the genre, I thought this will be manageable. Do you it's know how one. many, how many Forgotten Realms, uh, Dragonlance, uh, Ravenloft, uh, what's the uh, Grey? Oh, I temporarily forgotten the name. Uh, Andre Norton wrote Quad Keep, which is one of the Greyhawk books, but there. there Hundreds of just those. Hundreds. And then you take in like David Gemmell, David Ge uh, David Eddings, um, David Farland, just the Davids. If we just go through just the Davids, we're already <laughs> getting into a number. And then you have uh, Johnny Wirtz, Raymond E. Feist, um, Andre Norton, uh, Ursula Le Guin. And, and I'm going... On and on. Yeah, it'll kill you. Yeah. But, but so, what we can do though is, and I think we're all we may not we may not make this vow publicly, but I think we're all committed to reading as much as we can, promoting as many authors as we can that we we believe in their craft and we want it, we we shout to heavens about them. Uh, doing what we can and through through booktube channels, through running a blog, through writing reviews, to doing whatever we can, recommending, hey, hey, my grabbing our friends, say, hey, you should really read this book, even if it's a five-second thing, or putting recognition on Twitter or, or social media. I think in saying all that, we're all incredibly committed to doing what we can at the time we have, as Beth would say before we go, in <laughs> in 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 in, in being immersed in all of this and 
and helping others that we believe are deserving of 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 help recognition support and there's there's so many you know that are right every review i write i think i'm nobody right i'm but but like jenny said who's going to read that and who's going to think something about that that review that might be like you know what i'm putting that on my tbr and that's a win right well i i have to admit i in my early 20s uh I was a great deal more arrogant and sure about things in the world. I was positive. I knew I categorically, I understood this. I knew that I, I was absolutely positive about a, a number of things. Thankfully I grew out of it and realized that life is more complicated. Stories are more complicated. Narrative is more complicated. There's nuance and, and uh, subtlety to a lot of these things. And I became a lot less sure. And, you know, I basically got bullied into starting a YouTube channel by the evil Dr. Philip Chase and by the nefarious Stephen Erickson. They made me do it. And I know I will never get through and analyze the books that, you know, some of my commenters and subscribers have asked me to do. I'm, I'm not going to have the time. But what I try to do is share what I have learned and share different approaches to understanding and reading. And I'm not saying that anyone has to do that. And I'm not saying that they must read the books that I read. And, or even they must like the things that I like. Everyone is going to have different preferences. But the one thing that I tried to do is share my experience that I was extraordinarily privileged to uh, have. The, the time that I got to spend at university, the time that I got to spend studying this stuff, the time that I've got to spend speaking to authors like Johnny Wirtz, who is the nebulous, omniscient narrator of this chat, uh, speaking to Stephen Erickson, what I have learned from them, their different approaches to the craft, their different approaches to um, interaction with fandom and with marketing, their different experiences in publishing. All of these things are things I have been very privileged to be part of. And I, I try to share that. And I can never cover everything. And I am never going to be able to read every single book that I want. And what I have to content myself with is trying to do something positive, even if it is the smallest amount if and occasionally i get these messages from people saying thank you so much this really opened my eyes and i see a comment like that and i don't think commenters realize how much impact that has for us when someone says thank you this this really helped or i'm really glad you did that because i thought i was the only one when you get a comment like that it is incredible and then i think of the number of authors who I have taken for granted over the years that I never sent a letter to or never spoke to to say, thank you so much for these books. And because of some of my academic activities and going to the ICFA, uh, that conference in Florida, I have had the opportunity to meet a number of authors and been able to say to them, even in passing, like not bothering them for get signed this book or anything, just say, you know that book that you thank you for for writing that that 
it was incredible. It blew my mind. It changed my life or whatever it was about that. But to take the time to thank them, because if that comment means that much to me on my little YouTube channel, that 400 people watch this video, you go, and I get that comment and I'm like, that has made my entire day better. And I think of these authors who have provided hundreds, if not thousands of hours of entertainment, of intellectual stimulation, of inspiration to us. To take that moment just to say thank you and then to share that with other people. Well, you know, it all comes down to we can't do it all, but we can do what we love. And to me, the when people go, what is the meaning of life? And they treat it like this really heavy subject that you got to chip apart like some massive boulder and never get to the bottom of it. I think the bottom line is pretty simple. Either you find joy or you create it. And it's really easy to create it because on a day when you can't find it for yourself, you can create it for someone else. One comment, one nice thing to say to somebody, one bit of praise to a piece of work, one note to a booktuber, one, one comment to a reviewer, one to any person on the street, one compliment can lift them up. And no matter how down you are or what walk of life or how miserable or how little money you have or how little whatever in your life that you think you're impoverished, you're not because you always have that power to create joy for somebody else. And in doing that, you find what you love also. You spread that love. And it's free. And I don't get why this has to be so complicated. Well, and I would say that I, I always try never to um, sort of poop on what other people love. Because clearly I have my preferences about books that I love and writing styles that I like. And I try not to be, it's the difference between having a criticism where you, you can talk through the strengths and weaknesses of a work and being negative. And uh, I know that sensationalism and negativity can um, can can get you likes and clicks and, and all sorts of things and notoriety. But I try not to be negative about things that I try to um, comment as even handedly as I can and recognize that not every book is intended for me. And just because I don't enjoy it doesn't mean that it doesn't have value for someone else. And so adding to positivity is not you know, mindlessly praising things, but I think celebrating the things that we love, acknowledging that they are all flawed creations and then trying to and I, this is going to sound really pompous, but elevate the conversation toward the positive instead of the constant uh, negativity. And that is something I, I try in my own way. And I, being human, unfortunately, feel that because I might try, but I am never going to be 100% successful. But I think that is a, an important aspect of what we all try to do. We love books. We love literature. We, we love these stories. We try to tell people about the aspects that we love. And we try to be even-handed in acknowledging that they are not perfect. 
And I hope that adds to the positivity of the world rather than um, adding to feelings of negativity and alienation. Mm-hmm. Oh, very well said. And AP, I know it's getting late for you. Are you uh, <laughs> it's past your bedtime? Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> what time is it there? Uh, it's only 1.30 in the morning. Oh, oh that's it. Oh, just getting started. Yeah. Well, when you see when I was twenty, one thirty in the morning. Ah, which which where are we going on to now for whatever thing? My age now, I'm going. It's it's one thirty in the morning. Why wasn't I already in my pajamas underneath the desk that you couldn't see, so I could just crawl into bed as soon as this finishes? <laughs> like a true pro, yeah. Well, Thank obviously, you, Steve. Thank you oh. so. It's been a privilege, and it's great to talk to you, AP, from all the way across the ocean. And Paul, I'm going to be taking a second, a reread of your book, because there's so much in there. I'm just amazed that you tackled that with such courage, a subject where you watch in real time a white person talking themselves out of what is in front of their very eyes. And so the nuance of that you're written in with a sledgehammer, it's... I hope it opens a lot of eyes because the courage it took to write that. And I can't wait to see where you take your next seven books. And Beth, it's a pleasure again. I wish I had time to read every issue of Grimdark Magazine, but I've got to turn in and when that gets done, I'm going to go on a reading fest where it's more than just a half an hour or an hour a night, I promise. <laughs> well, th- thank you all so much. I know it was kind of a last minute, so really appreciate all of you taking the time out of your, your Friday or Saturday me. morning. Yeah. So thanks everybody for coming by and and uh, chatting. It's been it's always it's always fantastic. Thanks to everyone in the chat for interacting with us. It's always good. We have that back and forth. It makes it all that much more uh, mm-hmm. fun and exciting. So thanks everyone. Have a great weekend and see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.